If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 17, and you'll find it on page 1723 of the church Bible, Acts 17, as we're beginning at verse 16. The Apostle Paul is in Athens in Greece, and he's waiting on the arrival of his two friends, Silas and Timothy, and he is wandering around the city trying to take in the wonders of the city of Athens. And so we begin chapter 17 at verse 16, and again on page 1723. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him, and some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, they said, because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would see him and perhaps reach out to him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our own poets have said, we are his offspring. I imagine, at least in my own mind, Paul knew of Athens since he was a wee boy of five or six years old. And he'd been raised on the wonder and glory of the Greek empire. He would know, of course, that there were endless buildings, multiple statues pointing to the glory days of ancient Greece, which started around the 5th year or 5th century BC, rather, under Alexander the Great, who occupied territory as far as Athens all the way through to India. It was quite an empire. It was also known as the philosophical center of the world, influenced, of course, by Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. It was known for its literature, theater, poems, plays. It went on and on and on. 
Now, as the Apostle Paul was making his way around Athens with several days, in fact, I think he had several weeks waiting on his friends, what does he do? Well, the passage is pretty clear. Look at it in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he, see, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And so he gets into a discussion with them. And he begins by starting with the culture that surrounds them and moves fairly steadily into the heart of the gospel. And he begins to talk of the love and grace of God. He begins to talk of God incarnate in Christ. He highlights the resurrection. And that begins a long discussion. And eventually, he's invited to the Areopagus. The Areopagus sat there above the Acropolis. It was, for all intents and purposes, the debating center of its day. And Paul has a long discussion, and he talks to them about the gospel. Now, in the midst of all of that, in those days leading up to his presentation, I imagine the Apostle Paul trying to get his head around what exactly defines the Greeks in the first century. What is it they believe? There seems to be a multiplicity of gods and shrines and altars. What is it? When you boil it all down, what is it they believe? And if the Apostle Paul arrived in Greenville today, wandered up and down Main Street, spent the day with you looking over your shoulder, what is it that he would say defines us as a people? What are the things that are important to us? What is at the top of our list? We don't have altars. We don't have statues. We don't have a multiplicity of gods to worship. How would he get a handle on us? Well, he may go to a shopping mall, which today with high ceilings and spacious light and hundreds of thousands of square feet, is not unlike a cathedral where people spend a great deal of time and a great deal of money. And what would Paul make of that? What would he make of a smartphone where we can instantly have more information than any generation thought was possible? And for all of our technological sophistication, and I'm a huge fan of technology, we sometimes take our attitude towards technology and apply it to our faith. In other words, our faith should be instant, it should be convenient, and it should be there when we want it. Because we're somehow taught to believe that when we're on Facebook or Twitter or social media, we can have intimacy through anonymity. It is impossible in our relationship with Christ to have intimacy through anonymity impossible. Because he loves us too much to let us get away with a casual, convenient relationship. 
Our relationship with Christ is about commitment and determination of growing in your faith, of appreciating who he is, of making worship a priority, prayer central to our lives, growing in our faith each day. That's not a casual thing. That's not anonymity. That's intentionality. That's a willingness to grow. That's what it means to be a disciple to be growing, developing, living out our faith day by day. We live in one of the fastest growing cities in the southeast. In fact, one of the fastest growing in the nation. It is almost impossible to keep up with the growth and extensive development of housing in downtown Greenville. Every time I'm driving downtown, I see another apartment building going up. And as folks move downtown, they, not unlike the Apostle Paul, will begin to get a feel and a sense of downtown, what's important, what are the things that define us in a 21st century culture. They are living and immersed in it. But they'll also be asking of us this question. What are the things that are important to you as a church? What kind of church are you? What are the things that define you? Paul was asking the questions back in the first century. We're asking them in the 21st century. And we're also asking ourselves tough questions. And one of the tough questions we ask ourselves as Christian people is this. Are we impacting and influencing the culture around us? Or is the culture around us impacting and influencing us? And is that healthy? Now, please forgive me for this because we touched on it a couple of years ago, but it seemed appropriate again this morning. When I'm talking about culture, what do I mean? Well, let me give you a helpful definition I came across a couple of years ago, and it's this. Sociologists and anthropologists suggest that culture is the shared beliefs and values, conventions and social practices of a subgroup or society. In other words, what are the things they hold to be self-evident? What are the important things? What are the things that define them as a society and a culture? And then they go on. And they say, in which the raw material and experiences of everyday life are rearranged in order to express meaning that is good, true, real, and the important in life. Raw material. Back in the Middle Ages, the word culture was associated particularly with agriculture or horticulture. And back then, if you were talking of culture, you were talking mainly about farming or gardening. And in essence, it meant this, that farmers would take the raw material of soil. They would take seed. They would then grow plants and crops to feed their families and try and make a living. But as you got into the 17th century and the 18th century, and of course into the 20th and 21st, the word culture became an umbrella term. And it became an umbrella term for education, appreciation of literature and art, theater, poetry, and so on. It meant, what are the things important to us as a culture? So here was Paul in the first century trying to get his head around what are the things that define ancient Greece? And we're asking ourselves similarly, 
Are we as Christian people being defined by our culture or are we influencing and impacting that culture with the love and the grace and the goodness of God? If folks were to ask you, what kind of church do you attend? What would you say? How would you respond? Well, let me suggest this, if I can. That one of the things that should define us as individuals and as a church is this. That we have a gospel-shaped identity. And by that, I mean this. When the Apostle Paul was right there in Athens and had the opportunity to speak to the intellectual elite of the Hellenistic world, what does he do? He gives a masterful presentation of the love and grace of God, and he brings it right down to the person of Christ as God incarnate in whom we live and move and have our being. And he finished by presenting the gospel in terms of the resurrection of Christ. Now, Paul is a man speaking from experience. This is not some dry academic lecture. He's not lecturing from an ivory tower. Here is a man who met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and as a result of that meeting, his entire life was transformed and renewed. After meeting the risen Christ, he was a different person. God had impacted his soul and transformed it, and he becomes the Apostle Paul, speaking from experience. And when we talk about having a gospel-shaped identity, it means this, that we are a church and a congregation made up of individuals for whom the gospel is important. And by that, I mean this, that we have a relationship with the living God that He speaks to us from His Word. He equips us to live out our faith day by day by day. As we said earlier, worship is a priority. Prayer is important. We have a growing, thriving relationship with Him, which is a world of a difference from religious observance, which is not unlike touring D.C., casually looking at things and saying, my, 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 isn't that interesting? That's religious observance. Genuine, heartfelt, credible, growing faith in a relationship with Christ, not one of convenience, but one of commitment. That's what it means to be a church with a gospel-shaped identity. And that gospel-shaped identity inevitably, inevitably, moves us to be a heart-shaping community. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that whenever the gospel impacts a life, we grow in our relationship with Christ. And it's almost impossible, not entirely, but almost impossible to grow in your faith alone. Christianity is not a solo sport. But you grow when you do what? Meet with others in Sunday school. You grow when you meet with friends and family who love you and pray with you. You grow in small Bible study groups, whether it's a men's group on a Thursday lunchtime or Thursday morning, or ladies on a Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon, or perhaps a small group meet in your home. And you begin to realize that you have the gospel in common. 
And you begin to share your life and discipleship becomes meaningful for you. And you begin to say, now, I was struggling with this the other day. Has anyone else come across that? And suddenly you discover you're not on your own. You're being prayed for, encouraged. A heart-shaping community. We hold these things to be self-evident. They lie at the center of who we are. Gospel-shaped identity, heart-shaping community. But, and some of you are going to feel a little uncomfortable with what I'm about to say, but please be patient and gracious towards me. Because with Christian belief comes Christian behavior. And that sometimes means taking a stance against our culture. There are so many wonderful, spectacular things going on in our culture that we need to approve and encourage and support. But on the other hand, there are things we just cannot go along with. And when we take a stance on a moral issue, for example, we do it with grace. We try to be gentle. Our job is not to condemn someone or condemn our culture, but to say there is another way, another way. We believe that credibility and integrity and authenticity and honesty and holiness and righteous living, we believe these things matter. We believe that they should impact our culture and impact our nation. Wasn't it a spectacular moment yesterday? I caught it on the news last night when I watched Pastor Brunson, who 72 hours earlier had been languishing in a Turkish jail, is now in the White House praying. That's what I mean when I ask, are we impacting the culture or is the culture impacting us? We believe in the sanctity of marriage. It seems to me as I look out sometimes at movies and TV shows that marriage is ridiculed and rejected and redefined that we say, no, it is meant to be between a husband and a wife. It is meant to be to flourish and develop and nurture the full expression of love between a husband and a wife. We take that seriously. We talk about the sanctity of marriage. It is for us sacred it's not convenience, it's commitment over the long haul. And those of us who have been married 25 and 30 years will tell you that it gets sweeter and deeper and richer as the years go by. These things are important to us. They help identify who we are. And do we take stances on sexuality, sacredness of life? Absolutely but with gentleness and respect and graciously because we say, wait a minute, there is another way. It doesn't have to be this way. There is another way. How many of us, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, so please forgive me, how many of us were appalled at the Senate hearings when Dr. Ford was held up to ridicule, as was Judge Kavanaugh. No one won in that incident was dreadful. We're better than this. We take a stance and we do it with grace and we do it prayerfully. So when it comes to moral issues, when it comes to 
issues that impact us and our children and our culture and our society, we take them seriously. But in addition to that, not only are we a people with a gospel-shaped identity, not only are we a people with a heart-shaped community, we are also a people who believe first and foremost that when it comes to Sunday morning, we will be here because we believe and are committed to making worship the experience that it ought to be. When we engage with the living God and all of His wonder and glory and majesty, because that's where our soul is fed. That's where the heart's transformed. That's where we learn from each other. That's where commitment is conceived and then birthed and worked out day by day by day, often in the messiness and distraction of everyday living. Now, I don't think any of us for a second would claim to be perfect people. We're not. We certainly don't get it right every time. If you're in any doubt, please ask my wife, Ruth, who will tell you that I don't get it right every time. That she thinks I'm doing well if I get it right two out of ten occasions. We're not perfect. We certainly, hopefully, don't claim to be perfect, but there are things that are important to us in the 21st century every bit as much as they were in the 1st century. There are Sunday mornings when we're going to tackle issues that are distasteful, that make us feel uncomfortable things that I wish I would rather not have to deal with, but we have to deal with the tough issues if we're growing and developing in our faith. We must. I watched, we know that sin is dark, it's distasteful, it dehumanizes people, it's dreadful. And when we see sin, we call it for what it is. Not, as we said earlier, in a condemning fashion, but say, wait a minute, there is another way. There's another way. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, in him we have life and move and have our very being. Is the culture influencing us? Are we influencing the culture? Late earlier in the week, around nine o'clock, I was, had a full day. I settled down to watch some kind of, I was hoping for some kind of murder detective of some kind so I could switch off for an hour before heading to bed. And I switched on a program, started to watch it, watch it, and it became so salacious, I gave up. Just had to give up. And I was reminded of a quote I picked up a couple of weeks beforehand from John MacArthur, a pastor in California. And he said this, we should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. We should not be entertained by the sins for which Christ died. Gosh, isn't that jarring? Because I know I have to examine my own life. I imagine you are the same. So what do we do in wrapping all of this up? Well, we say this. Our faith is to be lived out each and every day. We do not look at this book as if we are some kind of tourist 
holding up to the light, looking back and saying, gosh, weren't they great days? This book is to be applied. It is to be adhered to and obeyed. It is to influence and shape our character and our integrity. This is not something kept under glass so we can ooh and ah, but it is a living, growing, dynamic. It is the Word of God. And please hear this. We don't get to judge this book. It gets to judge us. Holiness prayerfulness, character, obedience, they matter. And if we are to be the church that God is calling us to be in the midst of an exciting, growing city, there are biblical standards we will keep to and adhere to because our faith is not a museum piece, but is to be lived out and lived out every moment of every day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all of your love and goodness towards us. Thank you that there isn't a single moment in any day when we are outside of your love and your grace. Enable us, please, to live for you this week. Equip us please to live out our faith. Grant to us that gospel-shaped identity and may it define us. Enable us to fully participate in the reality of a heart-shaping community. Father, bless us and hold us close, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.